The movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, we're doing a podcast on Spider-Man. Look out, we're feeling Spider-Man. Don't shake your head at me. Welcome, listeners, if you're still here, to a new early release episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, I may not be here very long, but hey. (laughs) (laughs) But also... Our good friend Emmanuel from Eman's Movie Reviews is joining us tonight. Hello, happy people. Marvel is back for the third time this year with their next solo adventure of maybe their most beloved superhero. This film, Spider-Man Far From Home, serves as the end of Phase 3 and the closing of the book, so to speak, on the MCU's incredible Infinity Saga. Some of the directions it goes are pretty surprising, to say the least, and so this is a big-time spoiler warning from us. The film is definitely more enjoyable if you don't know what happens, so if you have not seen it, close us down until you have and then come back later. We also want to give a quick heads up that we are recording this episode on the night of July the 3rd, and I'm just not going to edit out all of the fireworks and traveling vehicles that are going around outside that you might hear. So we apologize if there's a little bit of background noise in this episode, but... Hopefully it'll just add some fun ambiance if indeed the fireworks do start going off. Oh, and one last thing. Uh, sorry, before we start, we want to say thank you and welcome to the patron family to our newest supporter, Alexander Holm. Alexander joined us just in time to be part of this month's donor pick voting, which continues on through July the 10th. And also here, our latest bonus content episode, which features us chatting about our highlights and hopefuls at the midpoint of the year. You, too, can gain access to all of our bonus content and vote in monthly donor pick episode polls by joining at patreon.com slash feelinfilm. This month's vote is between some of our favorite high school movies, Clueless, Ten Things I Hate About You, Can't Hardly Wait, Mean Girls, and She's All That. And our bonus content will be a conversation about why we love that genre so much. Uh, Support tiers start as little as $1, so check them out. With that being said, guys, let's get into this movie. I know we are all excited to chat about it. So one word takeaways. E-Man, we'll start with you. What'd you think? You know, the one word takeaway I had with this movie, um, and it's still kind of staying with me, is growth. Um, because this was, uh, I think, both Spider-Man and Peter Parker growing into a much like richer deeper role that we've seen before than that we have seen in the mcu anyway um you know when when tom holland was introduced as uh spider-man i was kind of lukewarm to it you know i've been a toby Maguire fan i don't care about the andrew garfield fans i'm sorry but toby's always been you know near and dear to me um as spider-man or as peter parker anyway but um homecoming really just didn't do it for me you know as i hoped it would um, but this one did it. Uh, this one made Peter Parker deal with some real serious themes that I think we'll get into later. Um, absolutely love that role of identity and, uh, responsibility. Um, but even from the, his other persona of Spider-Man, he literally has to grow in terms of his powers and his abilities as well. So 
all of those different things um is exactly what connects us to superheroes whether it's comics or even in the movies and i experienced that i felt that i loved it and i thought that was the biggest best thing about this movie because especially in the mcu with you when you get rid of those heavy hitters you know like tony stark you know spoiler alert again you know tony stark and and cap and all them you need someone to step up and that was like this re- i think that was the underlying message in this movie um it was kind of broadcast throughout the entire film but yeah you gotta grow into this role of being not just the next iron man so to speak but really the face of the mcu and i think this movie accomplished that i'm ready for more tom holland i'm ready for more spider-man movies and yeah growth that that was it for me with him it's fantastic man well what about you patrick i haven't got to hear your thoughts so i'm definitely anxious to know what you thought well, I had a blast watching this. This is one of the first times in a while that I've walked out of a theater going, man, that was so, so good. And um, it helped that I was on a date with my wife, something I rarely get to do. And um, I remember just having pockets of moments where I'm like, oh, my gosh, did that just happen? Did he just say that? Oh, that makes me so excited. I mean, these are feelings that I, I don't get a lot that you have like either – it's not even just – like Easter eggs. It's just like plot development that you're like, Oh, that could lead to this. And Oh, did you hear that? Did he say that? And I felt like a real fan in those moments. And when you watch enough of these movies that feel heavy, they feel epic and they're great. Sometimes for myself, I tend to get lost in that and I forget to enjoy the moments. And Spider-Man brings us back to that as a character. Spider-Man is the quintessential comic book lover. Like, if you're going to love a comic book character, you might default to Spider-Man because of the approachability that he has. He's young. He's immature. He's learning. He's growing, like you said, E-Man. And based on what I'd seen in the movie, I really came away thinking that was unreal. Like, unreal in how I reacted to it. Unreal at what had taken place in the movie and some of the twists and turns and how... It didn't feel cheap. It didn't feel like just another superhero movie. It twisted the narrative on its head at one point. And you're like, oh, glad I didn't see that coming. This makes it really interesting. And it got me questioning what I was seeing on the screen. And we'll get into that portion of it. But the word unreal just kept repeating itself in my head as I as I was as watching this. And I actually left the theater going, is this real? Did I really experience that? Or, or what's going on here? And... I don't know that I've ever felt or have felt that way when I leave a theater as, as being so visceral, being so connected to it. I'm glad I did, though, and I'm glad it was Spider-Man. Good stuff, man. I, I'm agreeing with both of you wholeheartedly uh, so far, so it sounds like we're all going to be on the same page on this one. My one word takeaway for this movie was grounded. And maybe on the surface, it seems kind of silly to use the word ground when we're talking about a character known for um, swinging from you know one tall building to another across New York City. But it's the small scale nature of the story that really made it enjoyable for me. And I know it's weird to say small scale when there's big elemental monsters, but at its heart, it's a small scale. We were all duped by the incredible Marvel marketing team into thinking that this was going to be a multiverse situation with Mysterio coming from another world. But nope, 
well, most of us were due. Maybe not E-Man. Uh, Never trust a, the Russos. It's an Earth-based <laughs> threat instead by a human using nothing more than technology. And, you know, whether or not that technology use is realistic is another matter. But the fact that it, it is we are grounding the series after spending so much time lately in space and or dealing with cosmic threats and magical powers and in just super duper powerful beings – so not only that, but the grounding of the personal stakes, I think, was really the big hit for me. I love that Peter is struggling with his desire to be a hero and his desire to be a normal 16-year-old at the same time. Um, he's dealing with 16-year-old issues like awkward relationships and weird teachers on a school trip, you know, high school stuff. It, it kind of is perfect because it fits with our July bonus content that we're going to be covering with high school movies. This is right in line also with the scale of the story that homecoming gave us. And so I was happy to see that the sequel continued in this manner and connected them like that. Um, I, I just was so happy coming out of it, Patrick, very much the exact thing that you're describing. And I almost always feel that when walking out of a Spider-Man movie and only Spider-Man movies are the ones that I can connect that way and remember that feeling from and it's it's an awesome experience to walk away with it really is and it feels like summer those movies make me feel like i'm watching a summer blockbuster and again i think it has to do with the fact that the mcu has invested so much in its stories that when we get up to endgame we're just waiting to be weighted down with a lot of just heavy things spider-man is a great reprieve to that because it reminds us of why we love going to comic book movies, why we love seeing superheroes on the big screen. It doesn't denote, it doesn't dissuade or demoralize what's happened before, but it's a great breath at the end of phase three that says, this is why we love our superheroes. Absolutely, man. And, you know, we've talked about it here already quite a bit. So let's just lead with this. Spider-Man Far From Home serves as both an epilogue of sorts to Endgame. And also, it's a sequel to the Spider-Man movie, right? In the new Spider-Man trilogy. Uh, my buddy Jeremy Johns, uh, who I was talking to at the screening for this film, we were just getting a kick out of thinking about the fact that this is the third, second Spider-Man movie <laughs> now <laughs> you know what I mean like it, it's kind of like breaks your brain when you start to think about how many Spider-Man movies we've had in the last what 15 years this is the third trilogy and that doesn't even count the Spider-Verse movie which is its own thing and pr about to have a sequel so we're about to have our fourth coming you know relatively soon so there's a lot of Spider-Man going on and this one serves as a continuation of a unique trilogy while also being a wrap-up of Endgame. So, Eman, I wanted to start by asking you, how effective do you think it was in serving both of those purposes? Do you think that it fulfilled them equally, or do you think it shorted itself on one because it was trying to do too much with both? I thought it did a good job of really just capitalizing on both. Um, I mean, in my review, I called uh, Far From Home a MCU confidence boost, you know, because there was a lot of doubt going in, um, not about Endgame, I don't think, but where do you go from here? You know, and a lot of people didn't even know that Far From Home was going to serve as like the final film within the phase uh, three, you know, and to kind of usher in phase four. 
Um, and you know, like I talked about earlier, um, given the growth that we see in both Spider-Man and Peter Parker's character, I think this served exactly well in terms of what you would expect from a sequel. You want progression. And we got that within the character himself. Um, so that was totally accomplished. Um, as for, you know, just, uh, uh, an epilogue for Endgame, we had that moment, I think, through Parker. And what was interesting, I kind of called Happy, like, as our medium. He was kind of like a happy medium. He was like our, our counselor throughout well this whole done. thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, while he's talking to Parker and kind of consoling him, he's also consoling us because we miss Stark too. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I felt like they were kind of doing a lot of double speak, you know, when they were saying like, well, what do we do? I miss him. Like, how do we move on? And, you know, it's just like, hey, you got to do what you got to do. Be the best that you can be. We will be okay. And I do think that that's a message for um, the MCU fandom in general and the audience of saying like, hey, you know, this will be okay. We know we gave you a bittersweet blow in Endgame, but check this out. Spider-Man's here. He's only the most popular comic book figure like in history. Um, and we've taken him up a step. And guess what? Moving forward, you can feel confident with this that, um, you know, you're going to you're going to be in for a good ride. And like Patrick was saying, I mean, this was fun. It was exciting. This is what we expect from the MCU in general, from their movies. And yeah, total confidence boost. And I do think it accomplished the goal. I think it speaks volumes about the partnership between Sony and and Disney at this point and being able to not compromise on quality for the sake of of money. I mean, obviously, Disney is or Sony is getting tons and tons of money from this revenue. Spider-Man being arguably the most popular comic book character in Marvel's catalog, people are reaping the benefits on the merchandising side. But you're right, man. Spider-Man works as a character. He works as an everyman. And when you have that happy medium consoling us as he's calling, consoling Peter Parker, we do feel that. We feel like, what's going to happen next? But I also feel like it balanced that grieving period. It balanced that questioning with a fantastic adventure story that should be on par with most, most Spider-Man adventures. It seemed to thread the Tony Stark presence and purpose throughout something that really was about Peter Parker wrestling with wanting to be a hero and just wanting to be normal. Uh, there's a fantastic scene with him and Mysterio that was going to become a connecting point until the the twisty wheels started falling off. And I was like, I don't feel great about that. But uh, <laughs> the mentor scene, yeah, where they have the conversation. Yeah. And I was like, that's fantastic. But there's some truth behind that. There's some truth behind the fact that Mysterio brings out the honesty in Peter Parker. He says, do you really want this? He goes, I don't know. I, I just want to be a kid. I just want to be on vacation. I'm tired. And I felt that for him. I mean. He has just experienced over the course of a cinematic two or three years a a lifetime's worth of experiences as an Avenger. And in some ways you'd think, well, that should be amazing. But no, he's like, I'm still in high school, even after being blipped. <laughs> I'm still in high school and I'm trying to get this sorted out. And I still like this girl. And that hasn't changed. And so I think that as a as a Peter Parker centered Spider-Man movie, it works equally as well. 
even with that thread of post in game memories happening, I think they both work well together. I don't ever think they were in conflict. They both served to, to tell each narrative appropriately. Yeah, I, I completely agree with both of you. I mean, the way that they are able to use the changed landscape of the world post blip. And I guess, I guess we're going to call it blip now or the snap. It's like it's been taken over. It, it, the snap is now the blip. I actually like the blip. It's better. a, it's a, it's a millennial term. I like the blip. I can't. It's, it's, for the, it's the Gen sorry. Z term of the snap. <laughs> the right? blip is awesome. Did, so did you guys catch the Easter egg? On the in-flight movies, the in-flight movies, when you get a chance to go see them, first this of all, guy. they're all hilarious. One of the movies was called The Snap, and it had the Infinity Oh, I did Gauntlet. see that. Oh, yeah, I did see and that. And the rest of them are even more hilarious. Like, if you get a chance to go rewatch it, it's quick, but every movie... I think there was another one about Einstein, something with Eric Slug... Uh, Slovag or whatever from Thor. Uh, <laughs> um, I forget the other ones, but literally each one is like a hilarious gag on previous Marvel movies. That's that's hilarious. That's that's very typical of them too. That's what gives it so much rewatchability. Uh, that's one of the things I love about what they've been doing with the MCU in general. But um, yeah, I th- just learning what happened post blip and how the world is different and so because of the different landscape of the world that's why the adventure is happening the way it happens but it's not it's very subtly woven in it's not ever forced and i i thought that you know we'll get into this later but the, the choice to not give us this multiverse situation where an alien or somebody from another planet was causing another threat it's just you know, looking back at it, I feel stupid for ever believing that was what it was going to be because it just didn't make a lot of sense. And it would have been really, really out of whack with what they'd done before with Spider-Man. I was so pleased with the way that it integrated and kept this as just a coming of age movie with a big conflict that happened to be a supervillain in the middle of it is what it felt like. Um, you know, we start, we were talking about the blip right here. And I think that the movie can kind of be separated into two sections for us to generally talk about. And one is the high school coming of age stuff. And one is the Mysterio stuff. And I want to start with the high school stuff. Uh, did all of your questions, E-Man, uh, of that you left in game with get answered in a way that you feel good about? Or did, I guess, did you even have questions about how the world um, works? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that that was always an essential question that needed to be answered just because we're in this MCU. You know, we're in this universe that is clearly expanding its world building in many different ways, whether it's the cosmic realm, the magical realm. But in the practical realm, we also have to kind of keep that in mind, too. So it was appreciated that this was um that, you know, the the five year gap was explained and i like how they kind of kept it lighthearted. how they didn't have an answer for everything they just kind of sort of you know rolled with it you know like okay uh if you were blipped for five years and it's been five years but you come back the same age are you really 21 or are you back to 16 can you drink can you not i'm okay with that not being actually resolved because no one really has a real answer for that anyway so yeah, the answers that they gave I thought were great. It was it was done with humor and that aspect of it. 
was definitely appreciated as well. Um, it didn't have to take itself too seriously, even though it gave us something. As, and as long as the movie knows that it's aware of what the audience is aware of as well, I think that that's a really good way, once again, to connect and to just keep us invested. Yeah, I look at I look at the the aftermath of Endgame, and I appreciate that it was treated as a little bit more lighthearted because of the way that I think the creators of these stories knew that we as an audience would feel, particularly after Infinity War, knowing that Endgame is coming and that we were going to be losing people. But I think it also is reflective of the world of high school in that as traumatic as the blip was, high school kids are going to be high school kids and they just want to get back to a new normal, whatever that is. And I loved, loved, loved the opening montage, the opening kind of memoriam that felt very much like a 1990s PowerPoint presentation with the kind of grainy pictures. Oh, good. It is great. And then you have these two commentators who are completely disconnected from my age group. Did you grow up in school with these? Because this was a thing that started right towards the end of my high school time where we would have morning homeroom and there would be someone from the school giving announcements or something. Yeah. And it's a big thing now in my kids' school. They were my, – my son was laughing out loud. He was like, oh, my gosh, this happens. They they do this and make jokes all the time every morning. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. I, I, I never got to experience that. The closest thing that we got was Channel One, which was a national broadcast. That's that what I'm in. used to. Yeah. Yeah. And you know these were as much as they could be professional kids doing their thing. They weren't cracking jokes and swearing and things like that. But – I also like the fact that there were repercussions that played a part in the movie. You know, you have the character of Brad that at the very beginning is sort of made as a kind of a joke. Like, this is what happens. You know, he, you know, he grows up because he didn't, he wasn't part of the blip and he's just like this amazing dude. And it turns out that he has some part in Peter Parker's journey throughout this narrative. And so being aware of that, but also being aware that it doesn't need to be the focal point, I think is a really, really great creative move on the uh, on the director and writer's part because you don't want that we've experienced this for two years we know what the repercussions are but let's look at it from a high school kid's point of view what are they focused on well they're focused on the fact that maybe they can drink now because they've you know everything is five years older now or maybe it's because they are looking at the world differently that was a question i had you know peter and apparently mj and apparently Who's his best Ned. friend? Ned. Yeah, yeah. The guy in the chair. All, yeah, all got all got blipped, but who didn't? You know, and so that that was kind of a thing. Is what were they going to be coming back to? It was explained in a simple joke. Yeah, and of course we all had to repeat our grade, even though we passed our exams. But whatever. So I, I think it I think it served a great purpose in answering questions, but in a way that felt very spider like. Yeah, I agree. It was a super lead in to the high school nature that we were going to get for the rest of the movie, just kind of bringing us back to that world so quickly. And, you know, any bit of heightened emotional heaviness that we went into this with remaining from from thinking about the end of Endgame, it was pretty quickly lessened with that fun humor. And like you said, I love that the Brad character gets to play a role in this later and it even to some extent serves as an interesting person who has a bit of maturity about him that the rest don't necessarily. Yeah, you know, he whether his 
intentions are pure or not. You know, he's trying to win a girl just like Sp- uh, not Spider-Man. Peter's trying to win the girl. Um, but I love how he plays in it. And the joke about uh, whether or not he's drinking on the plane. I nearly spit out my drink. I was laughing so hard when that happened just because that that's the guy that we we want to suffer anyway. <laughs> and so that was great. Yeah, it, it answered everything I think that it needed to answer. Um, I wanted to know how happy he was holding up. And I feel like we got to see that. Um, we got to see him struggle too a little bit and realize what it was that was going to help pull him through when he, you know, he lost his boss and mentor and friend as well. So I really liked what they did with that. It wasn't too long either. They didn't spend a lot of time talking about Endgame. They just went into the new story. So on the Peter side of this story, the Peter Parker section versus the Spider-Man section, I guess you could say, we see him struggling and craving a return to normalcy, clearly dealing with the trauma from Endgame and Tony's death. One of the things that really destroyed me was watching him get anxiety when he's getting interviewed uh, and just starting to kind of, you know, feel that PTSD come on him. Um, I, I hate that. And I think I've become very attuned to that more in the last, I don't know, several years of access to media where we've learned about stars and famous people, athletes and, and others who suffer with depression and such and things that we don't always see as fans from them, just seeing them on the outside. And that's kind of what I thought about here. I was like, you know, this is a kid who's who's got trauma and he's dealing with it. And the world doesn't see that. The world just sees you're a hero who saved the world. They don't relate to the issues that he's dealing with. And so that's how we kind of see him in the beginning. And because of all that, he is absolutely dedicated to going on this trip right? Without being a hero. He doesn't take his suit. He just wants to be a normal kid. How did watching him wrestle with this over the course of the film work for you as like a a main storyline, Eman? Um, I absolutely loved it because, um, once again, this is where the relatability kicks in, right? Um, this is where we get to really see, um, the behind the scenes of the character, um, I, I remember when I was first reading the comic books for Spider-Man and the amount of stuff he always has to deal with felt so real. And that was something that I was really happy that they brought to the screen because when you're, you're I mean, teenagers are, are already emotional boiling pots, you know, and the thing is, is that if they don't have an outlet or a way to like communicate, process and express those emotions. It's a mess, you know, and, and I think that that's kind of like what was going on in the beginning. You know, I mean, keep in mind that this takes place eight months after the events of Endgame. So that means he's been dealing with all this stuff for eight months and we finally got to that exploding point with his character. You know, the, the, the scene where he's with Happy and Happy stitching him up over the tulip field and all that stuff. And he just kind of like explodes because he just can't contain it anymore. I, 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 I love that. You know, I just, especially from Tom Holland's perspective, you know, as an actor, the performance, I thought that was like 
probably some of his strongest acting within the MCU um, so far. And just being able to see that level of emotion, that raw emotion, um, that's understandable. And it's a, it's, it was a payoff, right? It's a payoff from Endgame. It's a payoff from Infinity War. It's a payoff from, uh, Homecoming. When we look at the, uh, the lead up from ever since Civil War, where Tony and, and, um, the, the relationship between Parker and Stark, just cultivated time after time after time in each movie. And that was the precipice right there. I mean, I, I think a lot of people can agree that, you know, Infinity Wars most emotional scene was, you know, tone, uh, you know, Parker disappearing and then the reunion and end game. I mean, those were very touching. So this whole process of grief and just recovery boiled into these emotions that Parker deals with, like the anxiety that you were talking about, the depression. And oh, by the way, he's a teenager that has a crush, (laughs) you know, and oh, he also has to save the world as well. All of those things on the shoulder of a 16 year old, that's compelling. It's, it's, it's enlightening. It's in, uh, it's captivating stuff to just watch. And I, I just love that we got a raw emotional, um, superhero character, because when you get to see those levels of vulnerability in a character, it exemplifies the superhero feats that they accomplish later. You know, when we see the flaws in them and then we see how they overcome them to still rise to the challenge. So yeah, hats off. Loved it. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, Eman. And I think that what strengthens that is two things. One, what's refreshing about this iteration of Spider-Man is that the writers and the creative teams assume that we know his backstory. We don't need Ben Parker's death. We don't need the grief from that. But there's a consistency in losing a father figure that you've been close to. So we actually got that culmination. We got that cultivation with Tony. And like you mentioned with Infinity War and then the reunion of his endgame, it feels very realistic, very authentic in this journey that he takes in Far From Home. But what I also enjoy to what you've said in the past, Aaron, is that these don't have to be intergalactic stories. It's your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Even though he's gallivanting across the planet, it doesn't feel like it's not an invasion from an alien race that's attacking and it's going to take over the world, which has been very formulaic in a lot of movies. And at some point you're like, I don't really care that New York's being destroyed because at some point it's going to get fixed. When you have that neighborhood feel, even if it's in cities like Prague or Paris or Rome or Venice, you keep that personal connection to that character. And to me, I think as much of a Superman fan as I am, I think that's one of the difficulties is the ability to connect because he's a God because he's from a different planet where Spider-Man represents someone that we could all be because we've all been teenagers unless we are little kids, in which case we haven't gotten there yet. But anyone who loves comic books can relate to Peter Parker because of all that. We can we can say those things like, yes, I remember having a crush on a girl and how it destroyed me that I didn't know whether she liked me or not. Couple that with a weight of having a responsibility that is completely encouraged almost a little unhealthily by your aunt. And you are risking disappointing everybody, 
especially your mentor and father figure, Tony Stark, who is now living vicariously through AI. And so I think that when you look at this story, for me, it amplifies the Spider-Man character in a way that I don't think other trilogies have done. And I'll go on record in saying Andrew Garfield is my favorite Spider-Man, not necessarily from the sequel, but I can appreciate Tobey Maguire and what he did in, in that trilogy. But I think Tom Holland encapsulates both of those characters in a way that I love. And I think that this entry into it completely solidified it. If I had any doubts about Holland, it was denied or confirmed that I don't have any doubts in the first movie, but this made me go, okay, anything else, please don't, don't do Spider-Man anymore. Let Tom Holland ride this out and let's iterate a kid from him. Let's let him be the Peter Parker. If we go multiverse, let's be a multiverse from his perspective. No more new Peter Parkers, please. Right. Other Spider-Man. There's plenty of them. Yes, there are. I know. E-Man wants a Scarlet Spider appearance. So I, I, mean, I was just about to say, we can do another <laughs> one, but I, that's another story. I don't want it for the MCU. You want it for the Spider-Verse. I, I actually want it for Sony, Marvel, whatever Sony's calling their universe. I want them to just make their own Spider-Man. So that way they can leave Tom Holland alone in Marvel not have to deal with all these negotiations and stuff. And yes, I want the Scarlet Spider. So one of my favorite moments that ties into the whole trauma stuff is when Fury first hooks up with him in, I think it's Venice. And he's at, he's like, you know, aren't you going to say there's a fight? Like, aren't you going to fight? And Peter's reaction is he tells him, I, I just want to save my friends. Like, He's not interested in saving the world. His response is that he wants to protect his friends. And and I relate to that. Like I'm like, man, that's you. And when you think back to his interactions in Civil War and in Infinity War and in Endgame, like he's there because of Tony. He's protecting a friend. He's helping a mentor. He's not thinking about it in terms of I'm the guy saving the world. I'm just here doing my part because this guy who I love asked for my help. And you see him wrestle with that here because he doesn't have that same this guy I loved respect yet for Nick Fury. And he does have that same desire to protect his friends and protect the ones he loves. And I love seeing him wrestle with that uh, throughout. And, and I just echo you know, everything you guys said is why – I enjoyed this movie so much and why I have become a Spider-Man fan where I wasn't. Uh, I always wondered why this was everybody's favorite character. I thought he was kind of boring, to be honest. And yet, time after time, I'd ask new people I met, you know, who's your favorite superhero? Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Yeah, he's the world's favorite. Why? Why is this guy so beloved to everybody? Like, he got bit by a stupid radioactive spider. It's not that, it's not that exciting. He just flaps, you know, he, he doesn't fight anything cosmic. It's all ground level stuff. Now I'm starting to get it. Um, and I think part of it is I've been playing the video game and I've just like immersed myself in spider worlds, uh, including spider verse. And I'm realizing how much he, he's easy to connect with. I asked my son coming out of the movie who is now 14. I said, you know, what do you think about this and who's your favorite character? And he said, Oh, I'm definitely Spider Man. And I said, well, why? And he's like, oh, because, you know, because he's a kid, because <laughs> he can relate to 
Peter Parker and the things that Peter Parker is going through. Watching his face, guys, it, it was it's different. It's just different. Like he oozes and ahs at the spectacle of all the Marvel movies in the same way that I ooh and ah. But it was a lighting up of recognition of seeing himself, and I feel like it's in a in a way it reminds me. Or it doesn't remind me, but it makes me think what I what I imagine it would be like for folks who are underrepresented to see themselves in roles on screen that they're not used to. We were talking about it before the podcast started recording about the new news of Ariel being cast in the live action mermaid movie. And we're not going to get into this, but um, Halle Bailey is an R and B singer, African American R and B singer who was cast as Ariel and the world is going crazy because of that. And I, Eman had mentioned about how his daughters have no attachment to the original Little Mermaid movie. And so, you know, for them, they're going to see this and they're going to fall in love with it. And for them, they're going to be excited about seeing someone like them in a Disney movie as a princess, right? There's only like one other one that exists. And I imagined it's in a way it's like that for someone to relate to a character on screen. And that's why my son loves Spider-Man so much. And, and it just... I started feeling the same way just from an emotional connection. Like, man, you deal with stuff that I actually deal with, like trying to figure out how to balance, you know, flirting and saving the world because I do that on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that because like so recently I just did a, a watch party, right, for like I bought out a theater, invited like a whole bunch of people to come and watch Spider-Man. And among those people, I invited uh, about like 50, uh, high school students, you know, from my old high school, um, who also were STEM students. So I thought that was a cool little connection, right? And the funny thing is, so I'm sitting like in the row right before them and, um, or behind them. So I can see like all the kids just sitting there watching the movie and everything. And the benefit I have, because, you know, obviously we see these movies earlier, right? But when I'm doing these watch parties, I have the advantage of being able to watch the audience, you know, and just kind of get a sense of like how people react and things like that. And I thought it was just so cool that the kids were reacting to everything, you know, that Peter was reacting to. So all the little cutesy love, you know, stuff with Zendaya or MJ, they were sitting there like, oh, like they were awing, they were shocked, they were laughing, they like, they were engaged because that this was them. This was a character that's like in literally their same grade going through things that they go through and they instantly connected with them. So, I mean, just judging by their reactions, that is anyway. So, yeah, I think you were right on with that. Well, I wanted to ask you, do you think it's realistic what Peter is trying to accomplish he wants to be essentially a part-time hero i think that word actually comes up at one point in the script do you think that you can be a part-time hero or is him sacrificing quote-unquote normalcy always going to be a requirement because of his greater responsibility yeah i think i think that's always been like a central issue with spider-man's character right great power with great power comes great responsibility and what I like that they're doing um, with this character, like you mentioned earlier, how uh, all he wanted to do was save his friends, you know, and um, that's a great starting point for his character. I would imagine, um, given the fact that he's going to grow, right, the same way how 
Tony Stark grew from 2008's Iron Man to Endgame. Tony Stark only cared about himself, you know, in 2008. By the time we get to Endgame, 10 years later, if not a little bit more, he's caring about the entire world, you know. And I do think that we're going to follow a similar line of progression with Spider-Man's character where as he grows and as he becomes like the face of the Avengers or just the face of like superheroes and so, uh, so on, um, that sense of responsibility is going to grow as well. So I like the trajectory of this. Um, is it realistic? Obviously it's not because you have a responsibility. You have a lot of power. You can stop a lot of things. You're, you're always going to have a Nick Fury to be there to be like, Hey, we need you. You're important to this. And, you know, if you think that, you know, going off to space and fighting some evil threat to protect the world is on par with, but you got a date with MJ to go to the prom, you know, no, it's not realistic, but, you know, for Parker, that is his dilemmas, right? Um, so it's, it's interesting, but it is the struggle and the, the, the growth of that struggle as it progresses. Cause he's only going to deal with more heavier things later on. You know, it's not always going to be these trivial, you know, high school dilemmas that he's going to be dealing with. As he gets older, his issues and responsibilities are going to get harder and heavier. And I think the conflict is one of those things that always keeps people engaged to Spider-Man. And it is central to Peter Parker. Like the character of Peter Parker is always dealing with something. And that's wonderful. Like we, we need more of that. Yeah, but I'm I'm challenged by that because we are in a post Avengers world now, and there's a great scene when Peter's trying to basically justify not fighting, and he says, "Well, what about this person? What about Thor? Off world? What about Captain Marvel?" And there's that great line: "Please do not invoke that name." I know, <laughs> I died and, when he said that. And the truth is, as an audience, I've always thought about that when I read when I read comic books. I'm like, why are other Avengers not coming to help him? They all live in New York, right? So why is this only a only a Spider-Man story? And the reason why is because I'm picking up a title that says Spider-Man. It doesn't say the Avengers. And so I have to suspend my disbelief and think, okay, Spider-Man lives in New York. These other characters probably live close by. They can probably be called because they have their you know their watches and stuff like that. So I have to be able to kind of leave that to the side and say, this is a Spider-Man story. I don't think it diminishes that struggle that you mentioned, Eman, because that's a central part of his character. But if I'm a writer or a director, I'm definitely going to focus on equalizing what it means to be a teenager and what it means to be a superhero and, and, and build off of that tension, which I think Far From Home does a really great job of. Will that get old? Not if you continue to make it refreshing, and find a way. I mean, what we got in the mid credit scene, I think, opens a whole new set of stories on this isn't a teenage problem now. This is a Spider-Man problem. So how you deal with that is going to be really interesting. But I think the strongest stories are the ones where you have how can I be a teenager and a superhero at the same time, which is what you're asking, Aaron. The question I think is I'm going to ask more well, where are these other guys coming from? When are they going to come back and can they not help him? So I hope that the stories lend themselves to a more logical reason why Spider-Man's on his own for this one or why he's only pairing up with one other superhero um, like the comic books do. So I think they'll be successful. 
I just think that's going to be kind of a challenge going forward. I agree. Totally. And I, I do want to say before you move on that I agree with both of you on Tom Holland as well. So I think he is definitely the best Spider-Man slash Peter Parker that we've had. The combination is perfect. Um, I absolutely love him um, in the, in this role. I was not really a Tobey Maguire guy, but I could see the appeal by some as Peter Parker, not as Spider-Man. And like Patrick, I like Andrew Garfield a lot as Spider-Man. Um, but I think Tom Holland is amazing. And I think, like, I think you might have said this, E-Man, in your opening, but some of his acting in this movie, the emotional scenes that he has and that he goes through, it, it just further proves how great of an actor Tom Holland is. Like, this is not just okay portrayal of a superhero. Like, he's bringing something, he's bringing a pathos to this role that doesn't exist without him and that elevates it to a point where we get more out of it, more than we do like a Tobey Maguire or an Andrew Garfield, because he's able to bring both of those. And as someone who already loves Tom Holland and his other stuff, and someone who is very, very very excited about a certain movie that's going to be starring Tom Holland. The more I see of him doing this amazing work, the more I am at ease and calm thinking of him portraying my beloved Nathan Drake. So um, I just made me very happy to see yet again, phenomenal acting by him. Uh, Before we move off the high school stuff though, I just wanted to see what you guys thought about some of the fun stuff that we get to deal with. Any of the side plot stuff that really stuck out to you, like, the Peter and MJ pursuit uh, with Brad as an obstacle, the Ned and Becky storyline, how did that play for you? Uh, the school teachers, personally, if I have any real nitpicks about this film, the school teachers is one of them. I feel like they're a little overplayed, some weird jokes that, like, why do we need to see you dropping a camera into the wall? Like, I, there's, like, no purpose to that at all, in my opinion, really. Probably somebody's raising their finger, so they're going to tell me why I'm wrong, but that's okay. But anyway, my point is that one didn't work as well for me, but did any of that stuff uh, enhance the viewing for you? Um, Yeah, the Peter and MJ uh, pursuit. I, I love the chem- chemistry that Holland and Zendaya have. Um, I, I felt like they were, you know, teenagers dealing with new, fresh feelings and that awkwardness of, you know, confronting those. And so I, I loved it. I thought it was very convincing. Um, the Brad as an obstacle, whatever. Like, it was there. It was fine. I don't know if it was needed, only because that awkwardness in itself can be an obstacle for people. But it's fine. It worked. So I don't really have any complaints about it. Uh, the Ned and Becky thing, good chuckle every single time it came about. I was fine with it. The, oh, babes. You know, like, babe. those are great. You babe. Know, okay, babe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was totally fine with that. The teachers, my goodness, pick one. You don't, JB Smooth, unfortunately, was my nitpick. I'm like, the whole witch running joke thing, it never paid off. I, I almost wish that they, if you were so committed to that joke, maybe show an actual witch or something. I don't know, but it just did not feel like it needed to be there. And I thought that the first teacher that they had before, he was fine. He's been there before. We've been doing field trips with him before. Um, but it was totally excess fat that they could have trimmed off. Um, but outside of that, um, I think the only, the only side character stuff I didn't 
care for too much or I thought was a little bit unnecessary was when Ned and Becky uh left the opera to go tag along for Peter. I didn't think that was needed. If you wanted to get, I felt like it was added there just to give Spider-Man extra drama and, you know, extra conflict. But I think that could have been equally served if you had just put MJ in that situation. Because one, he's got to deal with that emotional issue, right? Then two, she's in danger. And she was already stalking Peter anyway. So it just didn't feel like it made a lot of sense to add them in there. But again, that's, that's a minor nitpick as well. But yeah, though, though, that scene, and the teachers were like the main things I just had an issue with. But again, super nitpicky. Yeah, I enjoyed the the sequence of montage when everybody's in Venice. And it starts with Flash doing his own little like video blog. And he gets like racked right in the nads. I broke up laughing so hard. And then the scene with the teacher losing his camera. You knew he was going to lose it. And I was like, oh my gosh. These are those moments where I was like, I'm reacting out loud to these moments. It didn't mean that these were fantastic performances, but I was already in the mindset with that first thing that it made me appreciate that. I agree. I thought the whole witch joke was inserted at moments where it wasn't necessary and it didn't pay off. So being that, you know, give me one teacher, give me the other, I'd be fine with that. But it definitely proves the consistency of when you talk about high school teen movies, your teachers, your parents are idiots. I mean, there's a consistent trope that we that we're so used to to seeing. My favorite side story was definitely Ned and Becky. And I didn't see it coming. I love the comic relief that they provided. I also like the fact that Ned emits this sense of genuine caring for what's going on. Like he he values Peter Parker as as a friend. He values his secret and that secret identity. Uh, there's some really great moments where after MJ finds out or she discovers that he's Spider-Man, he's trying to over he's trying to mansplain essentially without meaning to. And it just comes across as a really great humorous moment. But it says a lot about how much he cares for Peter. And I say Peter, not Spider-Man. He cares for Peter because I think if there's anybody that understands or at least tries to understand and have empathy for Peter, it's Ned. And I hope that we get more of that. I hope that we get more of him. I hope that we get more of Flash Thompson because I know there's history there. And there's a, mo- maybe you can, maybe you can shed some light on this, E-Man, but at the end, when they all get back to New York, Flash says, mom's not here. And I'm just wondering what's going on with that. So yeah. I, I, was, I was like, something's there. I'm going to talk to E-Man because he knows. I I, I don't know. Oh, come on. I do do have a theory. I do have a theory. Your theories Um, are great. Wait, save (laughs) it because I literally have a section in this podcast for E-Man's theories. Like, it is already planned. Because you are the theory guy. I I, I just got a quick one for Flash. I mean, I got other theories that we could definitely talk about. (laughs) Okay. Just for Flash, um, because I don't know where they're going with him, right? Like, this this idea that they put that little line there about his mom not showing up. And if you looked at his text messages, he also had mentioned something about like, hey, his dad there, you know, or whatever. It yeah, was. there was some. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, you know, I saw a glimpse of it and I was like, OK, what are they doing? That, right. that means, this means something. This is it, important. You know? It totally <laughs> does. Right. But I think because here's the one thing that we don't have. We don't have a Harry Osborne 
in this equation. And Harry Osborn's rich, you know, and Flash Thompson, I believe, is kind of rich in this movie, too. I mean, have you seen his car? Right. I would not be surprised if he is our new Harry and Norman Osborn happens to be the stepdad. Just going to throw that out there. Interesting. Nobody sees it coming. Dad is too busy, you know, and you, I, I'm just saying, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they did some interesting like that. That's very MCU-ish, you know. So I, I think there's an Osborne connection with Thompson, and maybe later Flash actually becomes friends with Peter, and we go down that route. Well, I love the inclusion of him in the whole storyline, and I, I will tell you, as someone who has not read the comics, the Spider-Man comics, I don't know who Flash was. When we had the Homecoming podcast, I remember Patrick bringing it up as he was a character, a reoccurring character in the stories, and I still I don't know him as anything other than the movies at this point, but I love what he brings to the story and the conflict that he is able to present, or what I feel like is beautifully being sowed in little seeds throughout these movies because it's going to build something right the fact like you said the harry osborne it's it's that spider-man 2 situation where you feel one way about the hero and you feel another way about the person and eventually that's going to become a reckoning for that character and i'm really really excited to see us get to that i'm not in a rush but i'm excited for it uh i also am in love with mj and i was very reluctant when this casting start was not the casting but when the portrayal of mj in homecoming i didn't not like her but it was jarring like it was just different i have come to absolutely love her and i think she serves as an extra great character in this one with her she has a specific line where she talks about i'm obsessed with telling the truth it's a great juxtaposition to kind of what mysterio is selling and on top of that, their chemistry, it, it's, it's great. Like, I mean, there's, there's just no denying it is that first kiss was like the perfect awkward first kiss. And to end that first ki- kiss with like, I really like you because you don't know what the heck to say. Like that is the moment that to me makes a high school movie a great high school movie because that's it. That's it. You got it right. Like that's what it feels like. <laughs> and that's how that moment goes down. That moment is not you know, very smooth and sexy and awesomely figured, you know, it's perfectly planned. No, it is weird and uncomfortable and you don't always know what just happened and you're trying to work through it and not look like an idiot (laughs) and because you want it to happen again. And um, I love that. So I thought that their chemistry and stuff was great. And the Ned and Becky stuff, I know some people complained about that and thought it was too much. I will say, if anything, yes, maybe they kind of went back to it the well maybe a few too many times with Ned and Becky, but ultimately I love it. I mean, I think it's hilarious. I thought it was a great running gag that we got the first time with the babe thing, especially, and you didn't have to sell me on a new joke. All you had to do was say babe and got me laughing again because the joke was still going. Um, I really enjoyed that. And then the moment with Ned telling MJ, he, he, you know, so now you know too. That's great, but you know, I knew first. <laughs> like, I, I, I just love that because it made me think of Patrick. You know, it made me think of a best friendship and the idea that like, I, I, I take pride in being the guy in your life that knows everything. 
Um, I don't want it to ever come to a place of ego, but like, that's what Ned is experiencing where right. it, it's, it's on that line of like, I don't know if I want to share this. Like, that's my best friend, you know? And so I really loved the portrayal of that. Yeah. What, what I loved about Ned and Becky were two things. One, this is what I was like at church camp. Okay. This was a church camp relationship. All right. You found the girl. You connected because you both cried the same worship song and you're like passing notes to each other and you have that summer loving and it happens on an eight hour flight. You're sitting next to somebody, you share the, share the earbuds, you're good. But the other thing is that I was flying back from, from Tampa on one of my business trips this last week and I kid you not, there was a guy sitting two seats in front of me adjacent to me. Every two or three minutes, he would look back and just grin at this girl that was like two rows behind me. And I could see on his cell phone, there were a bunch of different hearts as text messages. And I was like, this is Ned and Becky. Before I knew it was Ned and Becky, only they're just not sitting together. And, you know, he's 16, 17 years old. And I'm like, love is stupid when you're in high school. <laughs> but it's the best thing when you're experiencing it at a high school because it's real. It's very, oh, my gosh, I'm living and dying if this girl doesn't call me. And I think that relationship represents what is universal about teenage romance in general. Like that doesn't change over the course of decades. I related to that. Probably kids, your, uh, your kids age, Aaron, relate to that in a different way. But the, but the point is still the same. You sit next to someone for a long period of time, maybe sparks will fly and then you're isolated from your normal life for a week or two. And you find something in common and all of a sudden your boyfriend, girlfriend. And it didn't surprise me that they broke up on the plane ride home. But I love the fact that they played it up as like this adult thing. Sometimes you just have to end something. And Becky's like, Ned, you're so wise. It's people, such a people grow, moment. Peter. People grow. Yeah. It's, and it's such a great tongue in cheek moment because teenagers don't talk like that, even though they try to, but they don't know what that means. And, uh, but to them, it, it, it means something purely like important to them. So I thought it was great. All right. Well, let's jump into Mysterio then. Uh, we've spent a ton of time not talking about him, which is surprising, of course, probably to most folks, but gosh, I, I mean, the film opens with them meeting the villain or the ally or what the heck is going on right now. I don't know if you guys watch the trailers. Well, actually I know E-Man watched the trailers because E-Man watches all the trailers and makes videos about the trailers. Patrick, I don't know if you watched the Far From Home trailer. You did not. No, well, I tried. I tried not to. I mean, if it showed up on a big screen before a movie, I, yeah, obviously. But I didn't well, basically, this whole first scene was like the trailer, the most recent trailer, and I thought that was brilliant because as soon as it started, I was like, "Dude, oh man, like really? Like you guys? You didn't give me anything in that trailer, basically." And I loved it. I love the opening and the introduction to Mysterio. Uh, I'm going to let you guys talk first, but how did the villain play out for you? I, I mean, just how did it work? We What we know is that we know Mysterio is a human man who is presented at first as being from an alternate Earth. And he tells Nick Fury and Peter that his family was murdered by these elemental beings and he's here to stop them from doing the same thing to the Earth. And... So he's presented as this hero. He's gaining the trust of Nick Fury and of what's left of S.H.I.E.L.D., I guess. And Peter gets thrown into the mix 
we get the awesome, what I call the Iron Man 3 twist, uh, where he is actually not from an alternate Earth, but he's just a dude from the tech department with a whole lot of cool toys and a whole lot of other smart people on his team. Uh, and he's a disgruntled employee who wants to make some noise. And he's all about fake news. Uh, he is seemingly very relevant in the world today with his message in that he seems to believe people just want to be sold something. And it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. So how did this twist work for you? I know that it's going to make or break the movie for pretty much everybody. Um, so let me just say, first of all, I absolutely love the marketing for this film because I'm really big on how much trailers today affect how we interact and engage with movies, um, you know, compared to in the past. So the trailers do play some role, at least. Uh, in terms of setting up our uh, expectations. And, I mean, I don't think we got any real significant scenes shown in the trailers. Um, there was nothing shown after Mysterio's turn. So that was totally appreciated. They sold it, um, at least for general audiences that weren't familiar with his character. Um, I remember back in 20... It was either 2016. I think it was 2016... Um, so this is, I want to say, around when Homecoming was coming out, or maybe it was in production, something like that. Um, I made a video about which villains we need to see on the big screen for Spider-Man, and Mysterio was at the top of my list. And one of the reasons why was because I just thought that it was pure gold for any movie director to use a comic book villain that uses, wait for it, special effects for movies as their power you know and i didn't know this oh so i, so I googled mysterio as soon as yeah. i got out of the movie i was like i googled mysterio and literally yeah. wikipedia says he's just a dude who fakes everybody out with illusions and i was like how yeah. are we all surprised right right and that's it i mean he used to be a special effects you know guy on set and he was just really really good at it in the comics anyway and he just, you know, he was always unstable, so they kept that aspect of his character true. Um, and yeah, he just would do all these crazy things with these illusions. And what I liked about his character, especially from the comics and in the movie, is the fact that he's not just a stereotypical villain that's going to have laser beams or, you know, just super strength or whatever. It's a very unconventional ability. Um, that he's using that challenges the hero, Spider-Man in this case. Um, and what I love is the fact that he forces Spider-Man to grow. He forces Spider-Man to hone his Spidey senses or Peter Tingle, you know, like that he has to develop that because that was a huge criticism I had for homecoming. Like, how could you not highlight or really touch on the Spidey senses? That's like, a Superman movie without him being able to fly. That's part of his core being. So in this movie, they really capitalize on that because of Mysterio and his abilities. You know, Spider-Man has to trust his instincts on what's real, unlike what's real danger or not. So I, I love that aspect with him. And, and I do think that um, another highlight with him is Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal is a phenomenal actor. I mean, he's like, the next Leonardo DiCaprio, like in my opinion, like just in terms of caliber. And I don't think that the writing for this movie did him any favors, 
But I think his acting ability and performance superseded all of that and made that a non-issue. I mean, if you watch this movie with captions on, he's going to sound like a very stereotypical vanilla formulaic villain. But what he puts on screen when he flips the switch, when he's, you know, flipping out on all the other employees and stuff like that, the way he dupes Peter and all that, that's that's Nightcrawler uh, of Jake Gyllenhaal. You know, that's that's the guy on screen right there. And that was absolutely perfect with his um, just to really make the character, I want to say, almost on par with Keaton's version of uh, Falcon. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Vulture. You, you Vulture. probably just confused like half the people listening to this podcast when you said Nightcrawler. Uh, that's Jake what I want to Because they're like. They're Jake like, Gyllenhaal. what? Not, Jake Gyllenhaal was in the X-Men movie? Not that one. The movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, but, you know, I, I did appreciate the fact that they, uh, they grounded his abilities, um, in two ways. One, this is within the MCU, right? Like, he's using previously established technology with the barf tech that's already been there. So people can't just act like, oh, they just pulled this out of nowhere or it's magic or whatever. No, this is stuff he's developed. Tony kind of pimped it out and, you know, abused it, I guess, according to Quentin Beck. Um, so it's already been there. But the way that they grounded it, and this is very different from the comics, he has a team. He has a crew. In the comics, it was always just him. He was a one-man person just doing all these things with mysterious smoke bombs or whatever. So I like the fact that it's um, that it's a crew of very brilliant people because you don't just work for Tony Stark if you're just an average person. Like, he hires the best of the best. Sometimes they happen to be unstable people, but, you know, that's the whole evil genius thing or whatever going on. So um, I like that aspect that they did it, but I do have a, a little bit of concern because when you have so many people it, it leaves a lot of questions of like where do they go how are they not accounted for you know like that spurred more questions for me about mysterio and his team you know because these are a lot of loose ends potentially um but yeah his tech was great it it served the purpose um within the story and visually for audiences because that that mental trip where he fools Peter, you know, into giving the names and everything, that was amazing. Like, that's exactly you, what I've wanted a Mysterio to do on screen. Because he that, does that all from the comics. You and I were talking about that, E-Man, after the movie. About how it reminded us so much of the Arkham sequence uh, yeah. from Scarecrow. Yep. In the Batman Arkham series of video games, it's it's so similar to and just in general what Scarecrow does uh, with totally twisting the world to be this reality. And when Mysterio does it and you get to come in and out of the reality by bouncing into an actual real life like wall and that you don't see and having to deal with that, it was visually stunning and I too, I just want to say I completely agree with you because one, I can't buy one solo dude doing this and pulling this off. But when you give me this massive team of incredibly brilliant folks working together to create this illusion, then it's a little easier on my palate to believe that this massive elemental thing could actually be conceivably created by them. 
Yeah. yeah the the one thing uh and I'm sorry I, I'll just make this quick. The one thing that kind of got me thinking about it was like how did they organically get to this because like I said in the comics um it was just a one man team and it'd be a lot easier to fool people because he could make these productions and they would only be shown on TV, you know, but they didn't have the internet back in the 70s, 80s or whatever. So now it's like okay if you're going to make these types of illusions, how are you going to make them not only fool the average person, but you have to fool Nick Fury. And I like the fact that they highlighted that because Nick Fury is like on top of a lot of things and you really have to go that extra mile. And it was, it was just great that they incorporated that. Maybe if you're actually fooling Nick Fury, you have to go that, that part too, but. That's we'll get to that later. Patrick, well, what do you think about it? Well, first of all, I think Mysterio is a fantastic manager because if you're gonna if you're gonna have that team of people, you, the first thing you got to do is give them all kudos. So the bar scene I think was fantastic, and the way he was just giving accolades to everyone, uh, not even tongue in cheek. I really felt like I felt like everything he said was genuine, from his deception to why he was doing it to not wanting to kill Peter and his friends, and his motive. I want to be the next Iron Man. I also love the fact that Peter Billingsley is in this movie. So you got Ralphie from A Christmas Story as one, as his lead, lead guy who handles the, uh, who handles the, the drones and whatnot. And I'm assuming is the one who gives the, uh, gives the footage for our mid credit sequence. Now I wish that he would have said, I'll shoot your eye out. That would have been fun. That would have been fun. But I'm sure he's trying to get away from, from that character. But in all seriousness, I, I love being duped. I love the fact that I got invested in Jake Gyllenhaal's performance as Mysterio and the way in which he interacted with Peter. I love the fact that I think at one point he just called him Pete, which made it even more personable. And when the sequence happens where he stops the fire element and I'm like, we're about an hour into this. I'm going, okay, yeah, this is not, this isn't real. And Krisha pointed out, that at one point, I think Spider-Man throws his webbing at something and like a force field shows, like it, it hits a force field. And I think he says like, what was that? But it was kind of like a throwaway thing. And it made me think, oh, maybe that was kind of a glitch in the matrix of this special effect sequence when he's taking on this, this element. But I love the fact that, that Mysterio is fully invested in what he's doing and that he is able to he's a smart villain you're right man he doesn't come across as the mustache twirling i'm going to take over the world he has a little bit of sympathy a little bit a little bit um i didn't have as much sympathy for him as i did maybe someone like thanos but then again you know we didn't have the history of mysterio he came across to me more as a Jim Carrey's Riddler from Batman Forever, that kind of disgruntled employee who uses his his wits and his ability to manipulate tech to to do something great. But I think that he represents who we are as people, which is we want to be made we want to be known for something. And the questions being asked around the whole world, who's going to be the next Iron Man? 
And to juxtapose him against Peter Parker, who ironically, it's that battle with Peter Parker that helps Spider-Man grow up into that superhero that he was reluctant to be. We see Mysterio, who is completely ready to embrace that superhero mentality, but he doesn't have that growth path. And I think you need that kind of growth path. You need that kind of tragedy in order to get to that place of redemption. So having that kind of chemistry between those two characters was really great, even even more so after the the twist. And so you had almost like your cake and eat it too, where you had this interesting mentorship happening with Mysterio and Peter Parker, that great ledge scene, all the way up until the point where he puts on the Edith glasses. And I thought to myself, wow, that kind of looks like Tony Stark a little bit, you know, with the, the chiseled face and he, you know, he looks kind of like he wears those glasses well. And then everything disappears and I'm like, oh crap. I was rooting for you. And I love the back half of the movie, but the the effect of that was really great because I felt the betrayal like Peter did when he eventually found out. And movies don't do that to me. I wasn't just excited about the twist. I felt I had empathy for that investment that Peter had been given because it felt cheap. It felt manipulative. And it made the rest of the the narrative and everything that happened after that a lot more effective for me. Yeah, it totally did for me, too. I think, like you, Patrick, I love being duped. And when it's genuine and when I don't feel like I could have seen it coming, like I did not have any idea this was going to happen. And the way that I turned my head with my jaw on the floor and looked at the people next to me and saw them doing the same thing and everybody just collectively going, what? Like that experience, especially communally, is unrivaled. It is so special. And I loved the character. Like I loved it. I was like, because I feel like I'd already been duped, right? I was duped the first time. I was duped into thinking he was going into the movie. I thought he was going to be the villain. And you've duped me. So, okay, cool. You surprise me and he's an ally and that's the whole twist. And I'm on board. And like you, I actually had a lot of empathy for his fake story of his wife dying and for the very real effect of his mentorship on Peter that he was having. He was serving as someone, Peter specifically, he's like, I love having someone to talk to about this stuff, right? And so for me, I love that. I was like, man, you have value even if you're lying to Peter. And that bar scene, I mean, they're visually speaking and acting wise, it is one of the greatest moments in the entire MCU. Just the way that that performance, Eman, you're talking about, that's a Jake Gyllenhaal thing. That's not something anybody else could have pulled off in that way. He brings it. And that speech, man, was just amazing. And I loved everything about the way that Mysterio as the villain paid up, played out. In fact, the one thing, if anything, that I didn't really like that much was the fact that I wish he could continue on. And I'm hoping that there's some way that he does continue on because I want more Jake Gyllenhaal as Mysterio. Like, I don't want him to be a one-shot villain and then gone. Like, he's too good to do that, too. Um, and the big thing that I really took away from him was this idea. And, and I feel like it's social commentary that Marvel likes to inject some into some of their movies. It's all about fake news. And this is a real thing in the world today. 
So why wouldn't it be a real thing in the MCU universe too, right? I guess that was a that was a redundancy. MCU universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. A little bit, universe. a little bit. Well, we know where you're going. Ah, dang, fail. So twice, twice he says things about this. Yeah. Quentin says it's easy to fool people when they're already fooling themselves. Right. And later he says people need to believe, and nowadays they'll believe anything. He also says. People will believe what I want them to believe. He does. Yeah. He does. And and so I felt like the movie was making us look at our own way of seeing what we're being sold. Uh, you know, I, it was myself. I've gone through this journey recently, even in the last year or two. I've been one of the people who feels like I'm in a Black Mirror episode and the wool is being pulled off of my eyes. I'm starting to question what I read instead of just reading something in an article on a web and being like, Oh yeah, that's true. Oh my God. I freak out because that thing happened. And then you read one bit of detail and it's completely inaccurate or twisted or just a flat out lie. In some cases, an illusion, a Mysterio made illusion. And this actually pays off. I think at the end of the film in a big way, it takes what Mysterio was doing as a villain and makes it even more of a problem for Peter going forward into the future. And not just Peter, but, you know, it, it could be all heroes, something they have to deal with. Because this big reveal happens, and essentially what is taking place is Peter's being framed as the villain. But it's what's on the screen, and it's what people are being sold. Um, did that impact you guys at all? Did you, like... I reflected on it a lot. Yeah. Um, so a couple things. One, I, I I love the fact that you got duped by Mysterio because I think every Spider-Man fan that like just heard Mysterio was around saw the trailers like, yeah, I'm a hero. I'm here to help. We're like, come come on now, like come on. really, really, you know. But for general audiences, because this is literally his big screen debut, um, it's great that other people didn't get that. So. That twist never, it didn't work for me. I was like, okay, come on, give me the twist, hurry up. But, um, I also wanted to mention the fact that he is probably by far the most petty villain we've ever had. The constant digs that he made at Peter when he was during the illusion, um, and, and the grave scene with Stark. And he's like, well, maybe Stark would have been alive if you'd done this. And, and then just, of course, in the post credit scene, like doing the whole reveal, he didn't have to do any of that. He didn't have to do any of it. This guy is petty and and it's just it's ridiculous. But to your point about the social commentary and stuff, I think it is very telling um, just because um, we do live in an age now, thanks to social media and the Internet, where social where confirmation bias kind of is king. Like if you're on a certain platform and you like cat videos, they're going to keep giving you cat videos. So the fact that Mysterio is playing on that um, is is telling for today's times. And I think it serves as a great segue for um, someone like James uh, uh, J. Jonason, you know, uh, Jameson to come in because he fuels that. You know, he has a certain agenda in the comics and just his character in general to fuel like a hatred for Spider-Man. And he actually succeeds in creating a very stark division 
between how like half of New York views Spider-Man and the other half. So it's, I, I like the way that they're going with it. I thought it was a good way to kind of, um, to kind of introduce that very relevant situation and phenomenon in society within this, you know, fictional world. I, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. I look at this movie and see the social commentary, but I also see it reflected, reflecting what this podcast originated from, which is the desire to be negative for the sake of being a voice and how negative film criticism or negative comments or trolling comments about a certain subject. We'll go back to the little mermaid discussion, how it's less about being informative and more about getting clicks or more about creating an avenue to just get people to listen to you. And when you see a mid credit sequence like that, when you see what Mysterio is doing, people want to be fooled. People want to believe what they, what they, they'll choose to believe what they want to believe. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. I think that there's maybe it's an unintentional parallel, but I think there's a parallel between that and the way that comments get on social media with the attacks that Don was getting for his reaction to Toy Story 4. Folks were responding to that because they were just mean. They weren't trying to articulate an idea. They weren't trying to even have a discussion by threatening to kill somebody or to tell them to kill themselves over something as petty as that. First of all, that's wrong on any level, regardless of what you're responding to. But as a human being, as someone who is, <laughs> I admit that I'm attracted to that. Like when I heard that he was getting troll comments, I'm like, oh, let me see what those are. What does that say about me? Well, it says I'm a flawed human being that likes seeing where the fire is burning so I can see who's, you know, who or what's being burned up in it. Sounds like you hate Spider-Man is what it sounds like to me. Probably. I might be a J. Jonah <laughs> Jameson <laughs> without just... even thinking about it. But it definitely speaks to what we're probably going to get in future installments, which is how do we deal with that? How do we deal with perception over reality? And this movie plays with that on such a fantastic level visually. That scene that you guys mentioned, the deception scene is what I call it, is probably one of my favorite scenes of the year with the way in which it was choreographed, the way in which it was shot, the in and out of reality. It jarred me for the rest of the movie because I was like, I don't know what's real anymore. Am I in a holodeck? What's happening? And I think on some level, that's how I feel when I scroll through news feeds. Is this real or is this someone just finding a an alt-right or an extreme left viewpoint and throwing it at me and saying, this is how the world is? And I think the movie in some way is trying to get across that we've got to be able to understand what the reality is. We've got to go into that smoke with some kind of faith and say, it's not real. It's not real. It's not real. Let's find out what the truth is. That's me. I know jumping on a huge metaphorical soapbox there, but I think that there's a valid, there's a valid point to be made there. And that's, that's what I think is a real big moment. It was almost my connecting point when Peter swings into that thing and says, please don't be real. Don't be real. Don't be real. And then he sees all these drones and the next reaction is completely teenage awesome <laughs> you know because <laughs> that's how a teenager would react to it right but i think it says something about the fact that we've got to take that leap go into those uncomfortable places and 
figure out what the truth is. Find out what that truth is. Who's speaking the truth about this or that? Instead of just being a spectator on the sidelines, assuming that that big smoke monster is actually real. Good stuff, man. Very, very good stuff. Well, that leads into the end of the movie and where that fake news kind of stinger comes back to haunt Peter Mysterio's um, videos and this big reveal that that happens. I, just what did you guys think? E-Man, tell me how the post credit scenes worked for you. And let's let's take one at a time. So there's a mid credit scene. Um, we get... We get there at the end of the movie. Peter is swinging across New York. I don't know if he's picked up MJ yet or not before the mid credits. Think he was. Think he okay. was dropping her off or something like it's, that. It's sort of, sort of like yeah, it's all like swings into the mid credits scene. Yeah. yeah. So that whole sequence. What happened to you as a human being watching? That? <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, the mere fact that, um, you know, once they get done and, and you, you have the breaking news, you know, show up and all of a sudden we see Mysterio, uh, doing his little broadcast. I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. You know, like this was that contingency plan that he was talking about the whole time. And, you know, for me, even though I'm trying to, um, enjoy the experience, everything is going off in the back of my head. Like, wait. When did he do this? How is he doing it? What is he saying? What did he manipulate? And, you know, I'm thinking back like, oh, he went back. Uh, this is why William, the disgruntled employee from Iron Man 1, uh, unplugged something from the computer. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is where they got that from. So, like, while this is going on and I'm like, OK, this is classic Mysterio. He's really driven by this idea of trying to, of this hero complex that he has um and he in order to accomplish that goal if the elementals won't work you make another villain which in this case is spider-man and i was like that's perfect and then of course i mean the jameson reveal was just amazing i as a fan i'm i'm screaming you know in the theater i'm i'm fist pumping i'm guessing i'm guessing you know and um and I, I don't even, I didn't even hear half of the stuff he had to say. I was just happy that J.K. Simmons was back. Um, but of course, like once we get to the real, real big shocker, which is Mysterio comes back and then reveals his identity to the world. I'm just like, Oh crap. And, and it was very synonymous to, you know, back in homecoming when Aunt May found out because these are things that, you know, um, they happen in the comics, but for different reasons, right? So in the comics, for example, uh, Spider-Man reveals his identity, but he does it in Civil War because he ends up becoming on part of Team Tony. And one thing that he does is he goes on stage. It's during like a big media broadcast and he's like, I'm Spider-Man. I'm, you know, I'm Peter Parker or whatever. And that's, that was huge just for the comics in, in general. Um, but what I liked about this was that. Um, it, it almost felt like with his identity reveal, uh, by Mysterio, it felt like a complete flip from Iron Man one where Tony would just openly, Hey, everybody, I'm Iron Man to the world. And then in this final movie of the final phase, you know, his identity is revealed just reluctantly. 
you know, without his consent. And I just thought it was a nice little way to kind of like just have a little flip um, and, and contrast between uh, Tony's arc and now, you know, Peter Parker's arc. But yeah, it was generally fun o- overall. Yeah, I, I love the mid credit sequence. I think it was packed with a callback to nostalgia. I love seeing J.K. Simmons back in the J. Jonah Jameson role. And one of the articles I read was that this is a different J. Jonah Jameson. This is not a this is not Sam Raimi's J because of his haircut right. and whatnot. Just right. a new universe completely. But also that was a shock to get that kind of news because it opens up a world of Civil War-esque type consequences. And seeing that and also questioning whether or not we're going to get a multiverse at some point because Mysterio did that. I mean, he said, I'm from a different world, but he wasn't. Was that a hint? That was one of the parts that I got really excited about before being duped. So like, oh my gosh, the multiverse is coming. We're going to see, we're going to see our, we're going to see our Spider-Man 2099. We're going to see our Miles Morales. It's going to, it's going to happen. And then he's just a regular guy. And I'm like, wait a minute. Are you duping me on that too? Don't tease me like that. So I think this was a welcome ah moment to know that, okay, what's going to happen now? Pete's got his girl, he's got his life, and now he's got to deal with the repercussions of people knowing who he's, that he's Spider-Man. I was blown away by it. I think just leading into it, I was already on a high. Again, I, I have to reference the Spider-Man PS4 game from 2018 that I'm playing right now because the end of this movie is 100% intended to call back to that video game so it it, the sequences are filmed in a way that is exactly like what you do in the game when you swing through new york with spider-man literally you're flipping doing you know doing different tricks and he's pulling out his phone and there's a text on it that says don't text and swing and that is exactly something that's taking place in this video game version and it just, I was like, oh my God, they, they're like tying it in. It's so perfect. And so I was geeking out over that all the way through the swinging section. And then, yeah, as soon as JK Simmons came on screen, I don't remember exactly the words that were said either because we were literally, people were turning around and just high-fiving each other. It is, it is awesome because you have a character that is so kind of ingrained in that role that is just, just a perfect casting and everybody and their mother agreed on that. And so to have him be able to come back and like you said, Patrick, he's going to be different. It won't be the exact same version of the character, but he can play that character. And, you know, to do so now being post Oscar winning JK Simmons is, it's just, it's, it's so cool. I, I don't know that it's happened before like that, where a character comes back to replay a bit part they had or a, a side role now as this kind of a-list star later you know a big prestige star it's really really fun um and i also just I, I my son loved this and i think that's why i gravitate toward it but the fact that the scene ends and cuts with peter just going grabbing his face and saying what the f-? and he's about to cuss i love that because peter doesn't talk like that peter parker never we've never had peter parker struggling with his language being dirty or not cursing and stuff like that. That's not a thing, right? He's just generally considered a very pure, you know, kid, you know, and I'm not saying kids that cuss are bad. I'm just saying 
that's the black and white way it's portrayed in our media type, you know, entertainment. And so for him to be kind of letting loose in that moment with like a realistic reaction, kind of like when he swings into the, the drones and, and instead of being freaked out, he's like, awesome. Like that felt like the teenage reaction to me. That felt like the mo, that felt like what he should react. And I just thought that was the perfect, perfect way to cut on that scene. And it has me super excited. I do want to ask though, E-Man, you, you phrased it as if you said when Mysterio comes back, I read that scene as this was something that Mysterio had filmed knowing that he might die and it was created as a post death way to continue what his intent was. So are you saying you think he's not dead? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I will present all the evidence in the upcoming video. Excellent. Yeah, I, I didn't think I need that to watch all, that. But yeah, I'll, I'll be tuning into that as well. I yeah. will be too. So listeners, you need to follow. He'll give his information at the end, but you need to follow E-Man's Movie Reviews channels because now I need that video of my life. <laughs> um, all right, so second credit sequence uh, happens. And because we haven't been duped enough, guys, and we haven't had our minds blown enough, we get Nick Fury and Maria Hill driving down the road, sipping on a milkshake or something, some kind of drink, and it's not really Nick Fury and Maria Hill. E-Man, you're our theory guy. You're like, walk me through this, because I, I know you told me after the movie that you had sort of maybe kind of predicted this. Yeah. But did it surprise you? So, uh, yeah, no, this, this totally surprised me. Now, here's the thing. I had a suspicion, uh, after watching Captain Marvel. So I, I, I dropped this video and, uh, this is what we were talking about before. Like I dropped the video right before I saw Far From Home. Um, cause I didn't want to be accused of anything if it ended up being true. And it was about the missing scroll from Captain Marvel because in Captain Marvel, there were four scrolls that landed. And we only know what happens to three of them. Um, you know, Talos got saved. One of the scientists died. And the other one that impersonated Coulson died in a car crash. But the fourth one that was on the train that was being chased, we have no idea what happened to them. So there was a scroll on the loose from the 1990s in the MCU. We have no clue. So I thought um, that that scroll was actually going to be in Far From Home. Um, and I thought it was going to be one of the newer characters that they demonstrated in this uh, movie. If you want to know who it is, just check out my video. I'll definitely give the plug later. But I thought it was going to be a setup for a future Spider-Man villain. Um, but that didn't happen. And the irony in all that is just because in that video, as I'm talking about who could be a scroll, I specifically start off with both Fury and Hill. And then I just discredit both of them. I'm like, nah. They can't be scrolls, you know, so <laughs> I almost got it. You know, I was close. Um, but yeah, so like you were saying, um, you know, we started off with uh, Fury and, and Hill and then they turn into Talos and his wife. And, you know, we find out that they've been masquerading as Fury and Hill for a while, but we don't know for how long. You know, that's that's another question that um, I think deserves some explaining and. I was I was kind of getting ready to do some research on it, but I see other people are picking up on it and I don't really want to get too far. But I will say that um, 
I think that the easiest clue that we have is that it dated back at least from Infinity War. Um, when we first saw Maria Hill and Fury driving, uh, the clue that you get is that Hill refers to Fury by his first name. She's like, Nick, 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 you know, right before the car crash scene. So that was a very big clue because this might have been a plot hole and maybe the inclusion of the scrolls was a patchwork, you know, type of thing. Cause Marvel does that, you know, they're not perfect. They just happen to have so much leeway to go back and fix things that it looks like, you know, it was all done on purpose um, with all the patchworking that they do. But either way, whether it was on purpose or not, we at least know that they've been impersonating them since Infinity War. And the real question is, like, why? You know, I mean, we can theorize for how long, but the question is, why are they doing it? And as we get to the end of the post credit scene, we see that it's because, well, Nick Fury is off, presumably in space, in some facility of some sort, and he's working with, like, a whole bunch of scrolls doing whatever it is that they're doing. Um, now, the only bit of context, and I think would probably be the closest to what could explain all this, is that he's developing a sword. And sword is, like, let's just say the space version of S.H.I.E.L.D. So, S.H.I.E.L.D. protects the Earth and, sword you know, and so on shield. and so forth. You know, yeah, you get sword, shield, sword, yeah, okay. Um, he's a Pokemon. There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, but, but sword is actually, um, kind of like the Justice League's, you know, space station or whatever. They hover above space. They protect the world in an MIB type of style, um, against alien threats and all. And, uh, there's an inclusion of aliens within sword that work within sword. Um, so we might get a little mix of Guardians of the Galaxy and Sword working together in the future. Who knows? Um, but what's, it, it's just interesting because we don't know how long that's been happening. And a lot of people, ever since Captain Marvel came about and we knew Scrolls were going to be a thing, um, the most popular and prevailing, uh, storyline connected to the Scrolls is Secret Invasion. And the thing with Secret Evasion is that you have a group of skull, uh, scrolls that have been like secretly, you know, just swapping bodies, you know, with the Avengers and just powerful people on, on Earth and nobody knew about it, you know, for years. And, um, and of course this blows up. Real heroes have to fight against these other quote-unquote heroes but they're really skull scrolls in disguise um but from what this post credit scene kind of suggests if the scrolls are let's just say within shield themselves there's kind of already been a secret invasion it's just you know in a positive way you know because the scrolls were always portrayed to be villains in the comics but the mcu right now is making them you know allies so this could just be an all a friendly, more positive twist on a very familiar comic book story. Um, but it certainly opens up a whole no- another can of worms for the MCU. This is a opportunity for Marvel to continue to just intertwine all of their big event stories. I think they've done this in a lot of ways. If we look at Civil War, if we look at Age of Ultron, 
those did not follow the comic storylines. They were sort of beholden to what was happening with the MCU at the time. So the adaptation of those wasn't really that. It was a loose translation. But it reminds me a lot of Kirkman's The Walking Dead when you read the comics versus when, as a showrunner, he moves the show in a completely different direction after the first season. I think Marvel's completely in the right. So if they decide scrolls are going to be allies instead of enemies, why not? I mean, I went into Spider-Man blind thinking Mysterio was from another another Earth on a multiverse when most people know him as being a simple high-tech special effects guy. But he's not that in this. He worked for Stark. He's a disgruntled employee. The spirit of who he is lives in that character, but you still alter it because you have this history of the MCU that you have to that you get to work from, not have to work from. And so I think that in credit sequence was both hilarious. I think it spoke to the, the consistency of what we were getting from the movie, which is things aren't what you think they are. And hopefully it's a poke at something that might be coming soon. I would think so. I don't think that with the exception of maybe a couple of in credit sequences I've seen it. um, Most of these tend to point towards the future in some way, shape or form. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely got to be pointing toward the future with the space station and whatever that may be. And thank you for that amazing knowledge, because I knew none of what you just dropped on us. And I appreciate that. I, I love the scene. I, again, mind blown, just loved being duped and going, what is happening? Like, I did not see that coming at all. Not in a million years did I would I have ever predicted that, because I didn't watch He-Man's video before uh, the movie came out. So <laughs> I didn't know that that was even a possibility that Skrulls would be in the game. I love Ben Mendelsohn so much in general, and I love, love, love him in this role. So just, you know, an extra 60 seconds of him as Talos, I will take it. And I am excited because I think it can, means that he's going to continue in the MCU and be a player. And that makes me very happy. So I absolutely loved it as well. And I'm just... I'm just excited for the future. I, I was kind of lukewarm on Endgame, more so than most people were. And for me, this has reinvigorated me all over again. And I, and I do this. Marvel does the, you know, we have our hills and our valleys. Not really valleys. We have our hills and our, our flatlands, I guess, because they're all good. Um, and some for each of us are going to be greater than others. And, and they have done this over and over where they find a way when you think maybe, I don't know, it's going to be coming down the pipe next. And I don't know if I'm as excited about it, but then they do something to get you there. And they got me there. You know, like whatever Neil, whatever Nick's doing out there might have to do with the Eternals as well out in space. So lots of options. Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Captain Marvel 2. Who the heck knows what's going on? Um, I'm excited. It, anybody else uh, got any theories for the future they want to share? Or are we pretty much done and ready to move on. E-Man, I'm going to look at you. (laughs) Well, I already uh, tipped my hand in terms of the next project I'm working on. So, yeah, definitely um, Mysterio's alive. Um, I think uh, another one I'm going to put out there is the very easy fix for how Spider-Man's going to deal with his new problem. Um because I think they kind of already demonstrated that within the movie itself. Um, but yeah, I think, I think what's going to end up happening and, and we kind of have to temper our expectations is we have to keep in mind that so far with the Marvel timeline, with the MCU timeline, it's typically been current, 
You know, like if we go back, we might only go back a year or two, like with Doctor Strange or something. But, you know, if something happens in 2012, it happens in 2012 within the MCU. This is all happening within the year 2023 after Endgame, you know, post Endgame. Um, so I think what it does is it sets us up. So what the next movie's uh, Black Widow. So that's going to be a prequel. We're going to Budapest and all that. Um, you know, we got uh, Shang-Chi, the Eternals. We got all this other off world stuff that happens at a different time. So I think my theory in this case is the fact that we're not going to get that much more um, present day stuff and we're going to get a lot of gap filling maybe. Um, but it's kind of hard because the slate is open. It's, it's, it's wide open. We don't know where, you know, they're not really giving us very much of like, is there going to be a new villain? You know, like, uh, is there a potential, is Galactus coming up, potential Thanos-like character or whatever? We don't know. Um, and I'm okay with that. Um, I, I obviously like to theorize a lot of different things, but the the sense of not knowing is also exciting because kind of like how you guys went in and you didn't know about certain things and you were able to have, like, a different experience than I did, that's great, you know, so... Um, besides the little things within this movie, I don't know what else there is to theorize, man. Good. Good. I, I like it. I think a bold, ambitious move would be take stories that haven't been created yet. Don't necessarily use adapted, adapted stories. I think this is, this is where I think the DC animated universe really shines is they adapt great stories in a way that satisfies my cinematic palette. I think what phase four of the MCU has the opportunity to do is to really create fresh new stories. You can use story points from different events, but I know in my heart that at some point we're going to get an Avengers versus X-Men in some way, shape or form with their acquisition of Fox. We're going to get it. We're going to get it. It's a great event. It's money. But my question is, Will it be an extension of what will have taken place already in the continued MCU? Will this be phase five or will there be a, all right, we're going to offshoot this and we're going to start having some fun with these event stories. Let's bring in these properties together. Let's do a planet Hulk as it needs to be. Let's do a Wolverine versus Hulk. Let's do a Avengers versus X-Men. Let's do a secret wars. These things I think you have, you have a chance to do as self-contained movies as opposed to continuing your your phases, if you're going to continue your phases, at this point, I think you have enough confidence in your audience that will come back and see these. You have enough of your what were called lower-tiered characters that are now elevated to being mainstays. Give them new stories. Create new things. Don't necessarily have to rely on events or former storylines, so you're more surprised that a Mysterio might be a good guy in this world. Or that Peter Parker might actually turn evil. I think I think everything you mentioned, they are. They're not going to touch anything X-Men or Fantastic Four related, at, at least according to Kevin Foggy, for like five years. Um, like because they've everything that we see, they've already planned like five years prior. You know, like by the time we get to Far From Home, well, he was working on Far From Home back in like literally right after uh, homecoming 
was over with, uh, director John Watts. So they're, they're usually like way, way ahead of the general public. Um, once we even catch wind of these certain things. And, and I think that's smart. I mean, we just got done with Dark Phoenix and we really need some time to let that go away. You know, <laughs> just like yes. everything in that universe, because if we're going to bring back JK Simmons, Bring back Magneto, bring back Xavier with McAvoy and, and Fastbender. I'm totally fine with that. I can spend my, my mental belief, you know, to make that exception in the MCU. But I, I, I do think that we're going to get exactly what, what Patrick was saying. And by the way, I just recalled one of those in-flight movies. One of them was Nova. And if you know Love Nova, Nova. I know yeah, so that could be your little Easter egg for, you know, those uh, individual side stories that could come about from lesser known characters. I mean, Shang-Chi is not a popular character or well-known character, but my goodness, the potential is through the roof. I, let me tell you guys right now, Shang-Chi is going to be like one of the best movies they put out there. It, it's, it has it's a Kung Fu Marvel movie. It's a recipe for like success. I'm just putting that out there. So, I'm excited. Good. I'm excited. I don't know anything about that one either. So that'll be, I'll be, I'll be the one being surprised. Yeah. And you can, you can chuckle at how surprised and excited <laughs> I am. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up this awesome conversation as we typically do with our connecting points. Um, E-Man as a guest and we've had you go first all night. So why not? Why break from tradition now? We'll just keep having you do that. Um, what was your connecting point? My connecting point, I guess, was the it, it's kind of like Peter's growth. Well, in the beginning, I talked about growth for Peter Parker and all, but it was the growth for um, Spider-Man. The character in this case was uh, trusting his Peter Tinkle or Tingle, you know, and I really love that because that's such an essential and unique quality um, with his character that it, it really sets him apart. I mean, it makes him one of the most unique heroes while everybody else can fly, everyone else can have super strength, he has that sixth sense, and I love that they capitalized on it, and he used it um, in a way that just made him realize just how powerful he can be, you know, as a superhero. And that level of development within a superhero is always fulfilling um, as an audience member, because we love to see flaws within our superheroes or vulnerabilities and then have them overcome them and this was a huge one for him mysterio was kicking his butt throughout the entire movie and for him to like basically trust himself you know and believe in himself and you know i mean he showed out during that whole final uh third act sequence in the action scenes in london and yeah that to me connected me to um, the character it connected me to the movie. It made me love this version of Spider-Man so much more because this is what I got from the comics. This is what I liked from, you know, the video games, the cartoons, you know, whatever. What it was, this specific quality. So his uh, Peter Tingle is that. I, that's it. That's it for me. It sounds so bad. I know. But yes, but yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> What about yours, Patrick? I love the reunion that he has with Happy in the scene with the with the tulips, which my wife pointed out. Oh, look, it's tulips. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that they were tulips. I thought they were just pretty flowers. But yay for that. 
And I read a I read a headline yesterday that said Spider-Man director considers Tony Stark the MCU's Uncle Ben. I completely agree with that. I think that as I mentioned earlier, there's that interesting relationship that Peter Parker has with Tony Stark, how it is that kind of fatherly relationship and the loss was significant to him. What I what I loved about that is one, I think John Favreau is great. I love I mentioned this on the show that I like him in the director's chair. I think the the stuff he does as a director, I'm I'm really on board with. I love how he inserts himself as an actor and the characters he plays. I like that Happy himself has a little bit more significance as the movies have come out that he says Tony was my best friend. And I believe that he wasn't just his driver, that there was a relationship that he had with Tony. But the thing that really allowed me to connect with this movie was the hug that he gives Peter, where you mentioned earlier, Eman, that that was Peter's just low point. He's like, I can't do it anymore. I am completely lost. And that hug really signified their sense of they both lost something and they need to believe in each other. They need to help each other. But it's paid off like three minutes later when Peter is crafting this new spider suit and you see Happy just looking at him as he's moving around and he smiles and Peter goes, what? And he goes, nothing. But we know what he's thinking. We're like, it's a chip off the old block. That's Tony Stark right there because that's what Tony did. And to see Happy, Happy, you know, seeing him look at Peter and say, Tony's living through Peter because of that kind of influence. And he celebrates that. And then, of course, it gets that great kind of moment of levity where he turns on, quote, Led Zeppelin for Peter to be like, I love this, which is hilarious. But 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 it's really fun. And I like the fact that we see a little bit of genuine emotion from Happy. We see how much... Peter matters to him because of that relationship with with Tony. And I think it solidifies their relationship going forward. But it was just, it was really touching. That whole sequence was really touching. And I think that that look at the very end was probably my favorite little moment in the entire movie. Yeah, mine is actually the same, Patrick. And it's similar reasons. That hug really kind of wrecked me just with Peter saying he messed up, having a child a child taking responsibility for his actions and feeling the weight of those on him. It, it was, it was tough because uh, I was thinking about my son sitting next to me and knowing his mentor's gone, his male role model, his uncle Ben um, is not there anymore for him to go to. And so for happy to fill that role as a surrogate um, briefly, even it, it was just, it was beautiful. Uh, and I, and I love the motivation that Happy gives him. He says they're talking about who will be the next Iron Man. And he tells Peter specifically, he says, he didn't second guess you and he wouldn't have done what he did if you weren't here. And, and that line, oh, like you just know that's got to hurt Peter, but at the same time, that's got to be like one of the most meaningful things he's ever heard in his life, right? That Tony wouldn't have, been willing to leave the world if he didn't know it could still be 
protected. It would be safe. And he did that because of Peter. And like, that's just so huge. And you're right. It ties into like him making the suit, which then brings that emotional swell that you've been feeling that, that just you're, you're, you're feeling it so strongly and you're sad and all this. And then and you start to get happy. You start to get excited about the future and the redemption and like just the, the value that Peter is now feeling and him making that suit also remind me a of the game and B of um, also being like Tony. And it was just a super cool thing to watch. Even I remember looking around at like people in the theater too. Cause I was like, what suit is he going to make? Cause I, you know, I just was like, is he going to, is this Scarlet spider suit going to come out of that thing? You know, like you didn't know what it was going to be. At least if you didn't watch the trailers like me, you didn't know what it was going to be. So uh, that whole moment was really great for me as well. You know, it's funny, guys. We got through this whole thing, and we didn't even talk about, like, Edith and these super cool glasses that Tony gave Peter, this AI. I know Patrick mentioned the AI at one point. But visually speaking, I think Edith w- mixed in with the Mysterio usage, but before that, the way that it gets discovered and Peter's trying to use the glasses and the particular scene where he calls the drone strike accidentally on Brad, I just lost it. It was one of the funniest scenes in the movie, and I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't at least mention how hilarious that was. Um, and on some subconscious level, <laughs> relatable to what you would want to do to the guy who's trying to steal your girl. And the acronym's perfect, even dead on the hero. I mean, it's compl- yes. it's to- Tony it's Stark. Tony. Yeah, it's Tony. It's Tony Stark. And they look like Tony and, ah, yeah, Marvel's home run. And shout out to the baby goats. Ah, (laughs) there you go. All right. Well, thank you guys. Uh, This has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Just enhances the movie even more for me, which I already was madly in love with. Um, E-Man, where can people find your awesome work when they stop listening to this? Oh, by all means, please come on over to my YouTube channel, uh, E-Man's Movie Reviews. That's E-Man, just like He-Man, without the H, Movie Reviews. Um, and most definitely stop by on our Facebook uh, fan page. I say our as if like, there's a team. It's just me. Um, but, yeah, we talk about uh, movies, trailers, uh, funny memes, news of the day. Whatever it is, if it's movie related, we're going to talk about it. And uh, it's a fun time. So please come on and join. Excellent email. Well, thanks for being on. Um, that does it for this edition of Feelin' Film. We're taking a break for the next few days, but we'll be back next week with a new FF Plus. And then following that, we're covering a favorite of Aaron's, Pitch Perfect. I see a fist pump happening across the interwebs. So I know this is going to be a fun conversation and Kendrick has his heart and hopefully we will have your attention as you listen to this next episode. Guys, thanks so much for a great conversation and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. 
be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.